0: You're listening to the Safety Moment Podcast by Utility Safety Partners. Safety is always a good conversation and it's a click away. Here's your host, Mike Sullivan.
1: Thank you for calling Utility Safety Partners. My name is Mike. You'll hear that, how many times a day do we say that? Quite a few times a day when we have locate requests that are being called into our contact center now, most don't. We do have the vast majority are going online. But today we're talking about the contact center, the notification center, the one call center, which is not really a center anymore. My guests today are Mr. Joseph Rosenberg, our contact center manager, and Ms. Kirk, the director of operations for Utility Safety Partners. And we are talking about contact center today and, and tales from the contact center. But the word center creates a bit of a picture in our minds of you know, a nucleus, a, a, a hub. And physically, we're not anymore. We've changed a lot over the last number of years. It was a gradual change. And then they brought on by the global pandemic, it was an abrupt change. And uh, I want to be talking a little bit about that today with, with uh, Joe and Cher and how that's changed how we work, how it's changed, how we manage, and uh, what the future might look like there. And then we're going to talk a little bit about um, where where we are right now with the contact center and and what with the unification, post-unification, what, what are we doing different today? And I also want to talk about, well, just the, the lighter side of, of the contact center. When well, you get a lot of people working in uh, with the public and a service industry like like us, we hear some interesting tales. We're going to be talking a little bit about that. Welcome to the podcast, Joseph and Cher. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Well, oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, this should be
1: fun. So as I was just saying in our little intro, that this has been um, a, a big, we've seen some big changes over the last number of years. But before that, this is going to be, we're, we're in our 39th year of operations and we are about to embark on our 40th anniversary uh, next year. It's going to be a year-long affair, but <laughs> not really. But you know, 40 years—it's a milestone. It's a big milestone. And uh, we've seen a lot of changes in the contact center, beginning with our very first locate request back in October 1984 uh, by Hanson Plumbing, and uh, which is still operating in Calgary today. And uh, we—it's uh, one of our latest articles in our newsletter showed we we reached out to Hanson Plumbing and they are still in operation and they were flabbergasted that they were the first locate request and here we are I believe Cher you recently provided that we have surpassed over 10 million locate requests is that true?
0: Yeah that's right earlier this year it was we passed the 10 million mark and we uh, hunted down that locate request too so I hope we can get those two together the first and the 10 millionth
1: that was a that was a member, I believe, right?
0: I think it was, actually. Yeah.
1: Well, considering when you look at the the um, the number of locate requests we process, it's you know, getting close to five hundred thousand every year. It's a pretty constant number between four fifty and four hundred sixty thousand every year, just for Alberta. And then the notifications that go out is about one point six million every year. That ten million. Mm-hmm locate requests i mean how many notifications are we looking at on average about 50 million or 40
0: million yeah it's got to be close to 50 million we used to be a lot more notifications per request we used to be up around five and now we're you know closer to three
1: yeah and that's just with data getting better and better yeah for sure so the contact center this is we're not a center we're we are completely uh remote now and uh we were moving that way for a while. Um, probably I'm gonna say maybe five years ago. Would that be about right?
0: Yeah, I think seven or eight. Yeah.
2: Well, that long has it? it's been about probably seven or eight. And I I think everything kind of dovetailed off of the twenty thirteen floods when we, you know, basically lost the ability for half of our staff to be able to get into the office <laughs> yeah. to work and we said, There's gotta be a better way and that's when we started researching, you know, voice voice over IP, um, contact center, IVR solutions and things like that. And I think we rolled out with our current solution, it would have been about seven, seven and a half years ago.
0: Yeah, full on um, virtual. So
2: that's when things started going, uh, I guess, full tilt.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean, when we started that, um, there were some metrics we, we put in place. I remember that, that the agents had to have, uh, I think it was like 90% or 95% average score. In order to work from home, was that not the case, something like that?
0: Yeah, the original work at home program was started years ago. Um, And that was just a small number of employees that we decided to have be permanent employees that worked at their houses. And it was a completely different setup. Everything was still very much um, analog, not virtual. So we had full setups and wiring and just moved like mini offices into their houses and in those days, we had to do full mm-hmm. home inspection, um, make sure that they met all the safety criteria that we needed for the house and the space they were working in. We provided the internet because we couldn't trust them to have good internet at home like we do now.
2: Quarterly site, um, yeah. It was very
0: different setup. And yes, they had to meet very high criteria to be one of the chosen ones because they were permanent employees. And that was more… Yeah. Uh, part of our contingency plan, really, to have a backup system that didn't run off one hub. So it was kind of like a geo-redundant system, really. It was like, we'll put these 13 people at home, and then if something happens to our main contact center, we still have 13 working agents at any given time.
2: Early decentralization.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Was that common in the industry, or were? was Alberta One Call one of the first to do that?
0: Well, I know we're the first... They're the first one call that i know of that did it but i'm not sure how many other in the context of any industry uh were making that decision honestly that happened bef- before me right and you know and i've been here for more than half of our 40 years crazy to think th- of that but it's yeah. true
1: yeah it is crazy to think that i've, I've been here for 12 and i, I i'm i know I'm, can't believe, i don't know where the time has gone but we've seen a lot of changes and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this chat with you you guys today is because there have been so many changes. When we're here every day, it just seems like, well, it's a natural ebb, the natural flow of of work. But there have been more changes in the last 12 years of my working life uh, and outside influences on it than I think the previous 25. And that's not just us, that's everybody. That's And of course, the global pandemic really did that. And that's, Probably a good a good segue into where we're at today. I mean, we had the, the work at home uh, program going back many years. And over time, as Joe said, the 2013 floods was perhaps the first catalyst to, to push us towards a decentralized model or a remote working model. And when I first came to Alberta one call, we had this massive contact center in the back of the office. And I believe we had five or six bays of eight or 10 uh, people. Uh, They weren't all filled, but there was at least 50 agents working back there and only for Alberta Um, and, you know, five team leaders. And, uh, and today we have uh, at the height of our, of our operations today, we're, I think we're at 32 agents, I think.
2: Currently sitting, I believe at 32. Yeah. Um, we started the year of 35 and, you know, there's generalized attrition and all that.
1: Yeah. And so 32 agents, but the the work has changed dramatically. And that's not just for Alberta. We're providing services for Saskatchewan and Manitoba as well. We have been for Manitoba since I think it's 2013 or so. But the the work has changed going back 40 years or even going back 15 years or even, you know, 10 years predominantly it was all locate requests by phone that the agents were handling. And and that has changed a lot. And that's probably changing the way we hire people. We look at their their skills um, and experience to be hired. What are we looking for today in an agent that we weren't looking for before?
2: So when I started, and this is what, my 16th year or something like that. When I first started and I went through the hiring process, I felt like a lot of the hiring, you know, focused around customer service. That was, you had good speaking mannerisms and you were able to articulate yourself well. And I feel like that was vast majority of, of where hiring was coming from. I think over time we've really evolved to give a greater focus on, uh, you know, technology skills, um, people's ability to type, people's ability to critically think and reason their way through programs and user interfaces and things like that, because these things all translate into the meat and potatoes of what agents are doing now. Now, that doesn't, isn't to say that agents aren't mainly focusing on voice calls. In fact, most, um, if not all of them, when they come out of the gate are only doing voice calls. But because of the other facets of the business, such as our email support and our chat support and uh, troubleshooting, um, webinar processes, et cetera, uh, agents definitely excel and have you know, significant variety of tasks relative to what they used to have available to them, uh, should they possess the skills um, in those technology fronts.
1: So how is that different today? I mean, so an agent today, if they are helping or they're helping manage our, our chat function, how many chats are they managing at once
2: we have a cap i think right now of five um but typically it's interesting because chat volume does tend to fluctuate but you don't usually see their simultaneous chats go over two or three uh for the most part occasionally they may go up to five and frankly some handle it better than others Um, i think there's there's a definitely a, a specific aptitude when it comes to handling chats to be able to juggle five different uh, chat conversations at once. But our turnaround on chat is actually fairly quick relative to most companies. I've looked at, uh, you know, there's industry published metrics and things like that uh, for chat groups. And some companies have chats that last upwards of 30 to 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our average chat time generally clocks in around 8 to 10. So that does allow us to kind of, you know, we have pretty quick turnover and we are processing uh, speed for chat makes it so that there's not a lot of um simultaneous chat uh, bumping up against one another
1: what's a typical chat uh request what, what are we seeing that is more common than than anything else
2: um, and who are they coming from is it, the, is it the digging community or homeowners um for the most part it's I'd say it's about 50-50. Uh, probably about 50% contractors, 50% homeowners, but that's more proportional to the fact that there are more contractors than homeowners right. that use the service. Um, so a greater portion of homeowners utilize the chat, um, but about overall it's about 50-50. Um, we... Generally, they're looking for help with the website. Um, One of the great advantages of having a chat widget follow you around the site is that you can have an ongoing conversation with an agent as you navigate different pages and try to um, suss your way through the online web submission portal. Uh, And having that agent available to them uh, from what we gather and and the feedback we receive uh, is extremely helpful for those who are, I guess, less technologically inclined.
0: It's definitely one of the advantages of chat when we put it in was when we were really focusing on keeping people Mm -hmm. online. Um, so we didn't want people to, I mean, we can only make the website so easy for the layman because there are certain things you have to map a ticket. That's always going to be complicated for, for people. That's not something you normally have to do online is to map a dig site on a ticket. Um, so one of the things we wanted to make sure is that we had the resources available to people to keep them online, rather than have them get stuck and then have to go pick up the phone anyway and talk to a person on the phone. So chat has been great for us that way. What
1: are we What are we looking at now in terms of metrics? I mean, this is probably more a question for you, shares. When we were a call center, more of a call center than what we are today, how are our performance metrics, and how are we tracking that differently today?
0: Well, I'd say um, some of the old metrics, um, most contacts center metrics across the industry are, are the same. Um, you track, you know, how quickly you're answering a call, how long the agents are going to be on a call. So you can adjust how many people you need at any given time because you know how many calls are coming in and how long each call will take. Uh, but most of the metrics were around really around speed (laughs) Um, and efficiency and less around customer service uh, than they are now, because it was really just a business of, you know, get them in, get them off the phone. Um, Not in our business necessarily, but in the contact center business, that, that is the measurement, you know, either you're selling a widget and you want to know how many widgets they sold Mm -hmm. and how quickly they sold them. And for, for us, it was more of a, you know, yes, we had to make sure that we had that efficiency there so we could track and and have the right number of people on the phone was really the most important thing. Um, and now the metrics are really changing. We still have all those old metrics. They're still important, but you're talking about, you know, maybe eight to 10% of our business as opposed to the rest of our business, which is chat and support and email and all the other functions that we do to really inform and advocate and educate. Those are becoming bigger bigger and bigger pieces of what we do. Mm-hmm. So in order to accommodate that, we had to make sure that those metrics weren't uh, focusing in on the efficiency like they used to be. We don't want to push people in and push people out. We want more of a first call resolution where people can call in if they are, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, a homeowner who's contacting us for the very first time, they have no idea how this process works. They've heard about it. They they know they have to contact us. So our job uh, is really to make sure that they understand the process from start to finish before they leave us when they get off that call. They know what's what to expect next, what the ro- you know pitfalls might be for them. Most homeowners, for example, don't understand that their private lines won't be located. And before that used to be in the old days uh, when we were focused on efficiency, there was probably about... I don't know, Joe, you might, you might remember better than me, but, you know, there was this, a, a just a paragraph or two of statements that you just blasted at the customer before you let them go. <laughs> and it included everything from, you know, the liability statements, you know, saying you're responsible for this. Um, they're going to, this is how they're going to respond. Your water and sewer won't be marked. If there's anyone else in the property, you have to, you know, and, and it just all came in this big chunk at the end of a call. Uh, And we would consistently have those calls come back to us over and over and over again because once they left us, they got, okay, I got a ticket number. I think that's what I need. And then they realized as they went forward in the process, they didn't really know what to expect. And, you know, where's this locator coming? When's he coming? Why didn't he mark my water and sewer? So, you know, we want to educate people more on the process now when we have them on the phones. So we like to take a little more time to make sure that they, if they have questions, Uh, that we can take those questions and the the big difference is we email that ticket to them now yeah so at the end of a call they have a paper copy to look at so to speak uh an electronic statement that tells them everything that they need to know you know refers them to you know here's where the information is on the website but really gives them something to look at and say oh when did they say they were coming oh it says right here oh what do i have to do oh it says right here um, so that's a nice difference and people have a lot more resources to understand the process. And back to metrics, that means for us, uh, we need to relax a little bit on how quickly, I mean, we still we need our agents to be efficient. Otherwise, we'd have 60 agents on the phone all the time. Um, so they still have to be efficient in giving the information, but we want them to be open to giving information and taking questions and not feeling that pressure of, oh, don't ask me any more questions. I have to get off the phone um so yeah the metrics are more around a lot of things it's like how well you educated the customer um, how safe are your tickets are the information on the tickets accurate that was always there but now it's a bigger chunk of what we do as opposed to everything's equal you know yes you have to have an accurate ticket but you also have to meet this this time deadline and that's that's very different than what it was even five years ago i would say yeah
2: the last Three years in particular, the focus on keeping things away from speed metrics has been pretty much priority number one. Getting everything back to quality and customer service has been a huge focus in the contact center. And we're definitely seeing it pay dividends in in the kind of output we're seeing from agents.
1: We become more of a help center almost than a, just a contact center. Oh,
0: 100%. Yeah. We used to be, I mean, the whole purpose of the contact center in the beginning was just get those tickets in, like, process tickets process tickets process tickets that's what we did um but but like you say it's more of a yeah a help center it's it's definitely a resource for for everyone in the industry to contact us and be that hub that we used to talk about wouldn't it be nice if there was a hub where people could go and ask questions about damage prevention and what does that mean and you know and we can point them to resources now like our ambassadors and education pieces and you oh mm-hmm. you want a training seminar we can set that up for you and all that stuff filters through the contact center now, as opposed to every single call is going to be take information, get it onto a ticket, get it out the door.
1: And you would look at the unification recently between uh, Alberta one call, Alberta common ground Alliance and the where's line line campaign into utility safety partners, which is really designed to be a service uh, to the industry and to Albertans period on communication and getting the word out, using our services, improving this, the the process, the entire damage prevention process, uh, working on legislation—it all came, it all comes under this one big hub now of utility safety partners. And that outreach, it has a much broader uh, potential than it ever did before than when it was just Alberta One Call. Now I know we just recently did a, a survey, Joe. Because I mean, let me go, let me back up a little bit before we go to the survey. Uh, And I touched on this at the beginning of our, of our chat today was um, a couple of years back and we've had a a podcast dedicated to this. We mandated web locate requests for our members and contractors. And uh, you know, just to make that that conversation real simple, we did it because it's better. It it has, it results in less damages. Homeowners are roughly about 50% now online and they dig maybe once every five or 10 years, maybe once in a lifetime. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, metric right there that 50% of them are online. But this uh, recently, just last week, we uh, or two weeks ago, I guess now, we did a, a survey and uh, we were asking some questions, more so to hom- homeowners, um, about the web, the, the experience in the web. And can you provide some feedback on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh survey was really interesting to put out cuz it took a little bit of forethought I guess to kind of determine what kind of information we wanted. Like we we started with a pretty good premise as you mentioned, you know, uh like what uh what why do homeowners choose to call in or why are we only seeing a 50% usage from homeowners versus um contractors who are above 90% and members who are close to a hundred percent. Um, so why is there such a massive gap between homeowner usage of the website and, and our contractor groups? Um, so you've touched on a good point at the first at the outset is they just simply don't use the service as much. So there may be an awareness issue. There may be those other things. So we wanted to see, are you actually aware that we have an online service? And, um, we found out subsequently. No, 40% of the people who responded to the survey did not know that we had an online service. They were not aware that they could go online and put their ticket on there without needing to speak to an agent. Uh, The other 60% had various reasons. Um, Most of them just chose to call in, some of them disliked using the website, and some of them had, uh, you know, a ticket of some degree of complexity that they'd like to sort out one-on-one with the agent, which is fully reasonable. The vast majority of them uh, didn't have any specified reason. They just preferred to do it on phone. Um, with the remainder uh, questions, we looked at things uh, such as, sorry, I'm just pulling it up because I'm on my computer, uh, my downstairs computer, so I don't have that immediately in front of me. Um, so we asked them uh, when they were using the website uh, previously, of course. So this is pr- anyone who said that they didn't know we had a website. We actually just gave them a free pass and allowed them to go on with their day because that's all the questions we could really ask them about the website uh, at that point. Um, but those who have used the website before, we said, okay, so where have you encountered issues? Um, vast majority of them said that they just Ran into roadblocks when they were trying to create the account. The account creation process was too complicated. They were, they required too much information that they weren't sure about what to fill Mm -hmm. in certain things. And there's various help modules throughout the website. Um, When you click on boxes, it populates, you know, like a little information box that tells you what's supposed to go in it. But it's possible that these things just aren't as visible, or it's potential that they're using our mobile website, which I do know has more lacking contextual boxes because there's only so much you can fit on a phone screen or a tablet screen. Uh, And that seems to be about 52% of, of respondents had issues there. So that became a huge roadblock for them. Um, other places, of course, um, we saw 20% had issues with the mapping, as shared mentioned earlier. Mapping can be quite complicated for uh, the layman um, because not everybody's ever worked you know, with GIS systems or understands how like, a top-down satellite view works and how that relates to their work site, which is perfectly reasonable. And then, of course, um, some folks just had issues finding their site, entering their location or their address. Uh, and lastly, of course, we asked have the, if they've used the website before, um, what would make you more likely to use it? Because at the end of the day, that's our ultimate goal is getting more people to adopt that online usage. Uh, and at the end of it, um, the vast majority of users, uh, 40% of them said, easier account creation. Um. A lot of them wanted to see uh, better, more accurate mapping information and tools, which yeah. uh, you know there's there are various ways that we can go about that, which are unfortunately not quick solutions, things like base layers and and lot lot layers and things like that, um, and of course, a faster ticket creation process, which is something we actually are looking into um, in the past, we had homeowner specific Uh, submission portals, uh, which were more streamlined, didn't include quite as many questions as the contractor and member portals. um, And we're looking into hopefully getting something like that rolling out again in the near future. Uh, But 29 or 30% of them said they wanted to see all three of those options included, which basically means that we kind of touched in just in the process of building out this survey, I think we kind of identified where our three main pinch points (laughs) are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and because 30% we, we of the respondents really kind of right right in now, we know for sure. on all three of those things being a necessary need. Like, people don't always listen to full surveys. This was the last question. They have to listen... You know, verbally to all these questions being rattled off, and they listened to all of them, and they said, "Yeah, all of those are my problem." And thirty percent of them actually did that. You can actually identify that that is pretty significant statistically. Uh, that we we definitely kind of nailed it in in where we saw those issues and what we need to focus on in the future. So.
1: You have a month, maybe a little bit more of those dog days of summer left. How many things are left on your honeydew list? If you're going to be excavating, if you're going to be digging, please click before you dig. One click costs you nothing. Not clicking could cost you everything. So our sample size was uh, close to 1,900
2: people, right, took the survey? No, well, the survey was, uh, I think, 849 was our total. Oh, I don't know
1: why I'm thinking 1,900.
2: Okay, (laughs) a little bit off. Yeah, but that's still quite significant. Um, it was about over a two week period, uh, and there were 1,624 eligible homeowner calls, which means that uh, over 52% of those who were eligible actually took the survey, which is extremely statistically significant.
0: Great number. <laughs> well, I
1: mean, they could win a big screen TV, which was That's nice. That's true. That's we, a we good did carrot. carrot. And we, and we did have a winner and we're very happy that this person won, um, But when you look at, and I know it was okay, well, 50% or 30% didn't know we had, 40% didn't know we had a website they could go and do this on. And yet our monthly stats tell us roughly 50% of all the locate requests from homeowners are online. And of those surveyed, 40% or 60% knew there was a website, but they just didn't use it uh, for a variety of reasons, as you've already mentioned. So the majority of the public knows we have a website. The close to the majority, or about half, will actually use it. But now we've identified probably the biggest reason why they don't use it, and uh, I think we knew that. Um, I mean, now we know it. We for sure know it, and hopefully we can make these changes with our uh, our software provider. And uh, which will benefit not just Alberta, but anybody who uses this in Canada or, or elsewhere, the same services, the same software. So, hopefully, that'll, that'll bring us there. Um, but it's changed a lot. It's changed uh, you know, considerably over the years and, and moving that needle towards the web. I think uh, when we just before we first introduced the Click Before You Dig uh, call to action, we were less than 30% online and uh, shortly thereafter we went over 65% and now in total we are 85% online i think as of last month and that should pretty much hold true or maybe even more for the entire for the entirety of the year which is really amazing especially when we know and thanks to you joe for doing that analysis that locate requests online are less likely to result in damage. And that's a big, a big thing. And so much so that it needs to be a best practice. Do you think the day will ever come when locate requests must be online full stop?
2: It's hard to say. I mean, we've seen in other jurisdictions that they have been able to pull off something that's approximating that but i wouldn't say is is absolutist to that because even in those places where they have online locate mandates they're still seeing like a small two percent or so of their requests coming through by phone and there's there are folks unfortunately who simply just don't have access to technology or have chosen not to have access to technology and, and there always has to be some accommodation for them uh alberta for better or worse is a fairly rural province Um, ditto for saskatchewan and manitoba i mean it's it's canada you know you can drive an hour in any direction and not pass any a town larger than 10 people in some cases Um, we have a very large large province in, in total land area and not a lot of people in it so i think there's always going to be some edge cases where you have folks who just don't have access to a computer or have limited access to technology, and they're gonna need some way to be able to identify those lines because while they may be in far flung places, there exist buried utilities in far flung places, and we want to ensure that they're safe
1: sure well and we and we identify every month the the number of loki requests from rural areas as well as, you know, what the percentage of calls and webs are. And it's always leaning well over into the web, uh, side of, of locate requests. So, um, the rural areas do have access, uh, not maybe the access that the, the major urban centers do, but it's, it's improving and we are seeing those results.
2: I went camping this weekend, um, at, uh, Beaver Mines Lake and I did not have cell service for two days. So there are definitely Was that intentional though? Or you wanted to find a place that was like that? <laughs> no, no, my sister booked it. You can it. thank
0: the mountains for that.
2: My sister booked it, but but in the town of Beaver Mines, which is about 15 minutes north of the lake, they do have cell service. And that's a town of about I think 80 to 100 people. Um, but there are residential areas between the town site and the lake site and there's you know other things Castle Falls and things like that in the area and none of those places have cell service so there are people living in portions of Alberta that quite simply just don't have cell service they now they there are options as Mike mentioned we are entering the future you know Starlink and there's another startup coming up soon um, offer satellite internet uh which is more available but those are well frankly expensive and a lot of um still only have beta you know availability so they're not immediately available to uh a lot of these folks but eventually i i'd say ask me again in in five years and maybe i'll be thinking a different tune oh
1: well, in five years i think we'll see a, a different uptick again yeah for sure Getting to perhaps the lighter side of the contact center, we're dealing with the public every day. Whether it's contractors, members, or homeowners, government officials, you name it, um, podcasters, we are dealing with a lot of different people today. And uh, so what are we what are we seeing in terms of or some of the lighter side? What are some of the more unique uh, discussions we may have had or or heard from the public?
0: Well, definitely one of the most common, I don't know how humor it is, but certainly one of the misconceptions out there from the beginning. When we used to call, you know, when Alberta One Call came into the world, it was Alberta First Call. When it changed to Alberta One Call, uh, a lot of people thought, okay, first of all, they think we're a government agency. Yeah. Because we have Alberta in our name.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And we have one call in our name, so they... You know, they think, oh, this is the place you call for all information on all things. Uh, You know, they don't relate it to damage prevention. They relate it to, you know, like a 411 for everything. So we used to get all kinds of calls asking us for, you know, I need the number for Joe in Blairmore. Um, Can you look that up for me? And, you know, we used to have some agents who would sit on calls with people who would refuse to believe that we weren't some kind of directory service. And they would look up numbers for them online and give them the information over the phone just because they couldn't convince them otherwise. That was definitely one of the more popular ones. You know, you don't want to, you know, you hear about contact center stories. You know, you can go online and find contact center stories anywhere for, in particular, tech support is always good for a humorous, you know, because people who don't understand their computer or call in for for support are, are, are usually pretty funny calls from time to time. People think their, you know, CD-ROM drives were coffee holders in the old days, things like that. Yeah. Or holding their pages up to their screen, trying to scan their, you know, can you see this, can you see me now kind of um, questions. Well, the
1: big joke was always in the early days, you know, somebody doing a correction of their document, they had whiteout on their screen. Yeah,
0: right? that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. we're we're well past those those kind of days now, for the most part. Um. But I don't, I always found that those kind of stories, I guess I just, I don't really like mocking people for their ignorance. It's kind of how it feels sometimes, you know, people call in, they need help. They're not always going to know everything. And certainly in our industry, they have no idea uh, what we do. And so some of the funnier stories are just coming from people who just don't understand. And we find it humorous because we're in the know, right?
1: (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, to, to us it's commonplace.
0: Yeah, it, exactly. So, you know, our the things I find humorous were always, you know, what was going on in the in the background, the the invisible contact center uh, to people. I can recall days where we used to have a group of uh, women who worked for the contact center when we were in a contact center proper, who had this knitting bee thing going on. And there would be all these women sitting around knitting, and when they had to organize their wool, there would be yarn stretched across the aisles of the contact center that people had to work their way through to get from one side to the other because these women would be making these yarn balls across the contact center. Traps, yeah, they were. really? It was like a big, <laughs> like a trap, red, you know, spider web of work your way to the to the lunchroom. Yeah, that's weird. Weird things happen inside contact centers. There, there are definitely a a different kind of community uh of people in a contact center. A unique bunch.
1: It is unique. I I, I agree there is it's a very unique element to the contact center and probably still today, although we just don't see it because we're all remote. And you know, we 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 try to do uh, events for to keep people together now that the pandemic is is in the rear view mirror. Uh, we do try to, to have events and bring people together, but it's not like it used to be. We used to have our stampede event and Christmas and Thanksgiving and um, you know lunch and learns in the office. But we still manage to do some of that remotely. And that's a good thing. But it's interesting to see how quickly that has changed and been become accepted. And even bringing people together for a social event is not as easy as it once was. People are like, oh, no, we're good we're good. Um, not everybody needs it. And, uh, it, it, as, as much as we try, we're just not seeing that. Um, and I hope that, well, I know we're going to keep trying know we're going to keep doing whatever we can to, uh, you know, to make that human connection, which is important. Uh, and that human connection is something that, you know, for a contact center, we have to keep doing as well. And one last question, I guess, in terms of, of, of where we're at today how big a role do you think social media is playing um, in, in our existence today? I mean, it, it's been around for a while now, but how big a role do you think that's playing in our uh, our existence?
0: I think we're in an interesting point in social media right now, like right now. I think we're at some kind of a tipping point. where, When it first came out, uh, social media really was that. It was... For social interactions, it was, you know, you got together with your group of people and you talked online. Uh, it became a nice way. Things like Facebook became a nice way to keep in contact with people that you've known for years that don't live around you and uh, and things like that. But we're seeing, I think, uh, you know, with especially with changes, big big changes like Twitter, uh, and everyone being concerned about the conversation and the divisiveness and you know, the misinformation that can be so easily spread over social media. I think social media is at a point right now where we're seeing it fracture in so many different ways, that it's, it's going to morph into something new, like it's not going to be what it was, where there was like these three main, you know, there's always been Facebook, and there's always been Instagram, and there's always been LinkedIn and Twitter. And now there's so many different apps and ways that people can connect with each other, it's really going to start to be more of a pick and choose. And we're going to lose, I think even more uh, of that getting outside your echo chamber um, that, that we used to have. And I think that's disappointing. I think it's important that those conversations across different viewpoints continue and different interests. And you can, you could actually, you should be able to learn something new when you're online uh, now you just get reinforced in what you already think, and I, I think that's sad.
2: Well, I think it's kind of funny because you mentioned how social media started, and in a way, I feel it's kind of regressing back to that, where you're seeing more individualized communities pop up um, as a result of all the larger groups. It's it's in uh, there's a the a technology blogger named Adam Fisher. He actually um, posited this last year. It's the the idea of the trust thermoclean. Uh, thermoclean is like an ocean uh, phenomena where you'll suddenly go below a certain depth in the ocean and the temperature of the ocean just drops. Um, the trust thermoclean, as he posits it, is effectively when a company or companies push the margins of trust with their users more and more and more and more and more till they hit a breaking point where the users just lose all trust in the company. And you see a massive drop up in both usage of, of customers and trust in the information that's being purveyed on their platform. We've already seen it with Facebook. We're currently see it, um, occurring with Twitter right now, uh, or X, I guess. Um, and it's, It's curious that the the more companies drop off the Trust ThermaClean, the the more we see users, again, like you said, kind of enclaving themselves in more, you know, individualized or echo chamber type communities um, because the, the public square, I guess, has kind of been eroded to the point that nobody really trusts if they're talking to real people or if they're being astroturfed by governments or special interest groups or corporations or things like that. So they they remove themselves to these insular communities that may or may not have similar issues, but they're not as obvious, I guess.
0: I was just going to say, which over time really impacts how a business would use social media Whereas before we could reach huge, large swaths of people by being on what was a trusted social media site. Uh, And now, you know, with people insulating themselves, as you said, Joe, uh, into these smaller communities, it's harder for us. It will become harder for us as a company to reach larger groups of people. Uh, It may come to choosing, trying to find your right demographic of people across social media, whereas before it was, you know, less about that. It was more of a blast across the radio waves. Now it's less about, you know, if you think about radio stations, there was radio, and then there was people who would pick and choose their radio stations. It's going to be the same across social media, where we're going to have to find the stations that matter to us as a company or the the people that we were trying to reach are, and then we're going to have to be on those platforms, um, so there's a lot more research that's going to have to go into it and a lot more awareness about what new uh, platforms are popping up and where people are going and what people are going there. Uh, so it's losing its effectiveness as an advertising tool, I suppose, which not necessarily a bad thing. But from a business point of view, it just makes it harder to reach your audience because people are online. Um, and that's where we have to reach them.
1: Well, and people online today, unfortunately, we have to play, in an advertising perspective, we have to play to the least common denominator. That's the person who's just you know, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And we still need to try and reach those people. And our advertising is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And it has to have uh, visual movement uh, to catch the person's attention. It has to have sound. It has to have captions. It's and yet it has to be done in about seven seconds. It used to be fifteen, and before that it was twenty. Now we're probably down to more like seven, and and it's really hard to to get your advertising, your message out, in that tight little space, that bundle, and uh, it it's getting tougher and tougher. But I agree that you know social media, um, <laughs> people call it anti-social media. It uh, it has that unfortunate uh, drawback, and and we're trying to promote a very simple message of of this is what you need to do to stay safe period. And in amongst a sea of disinformation, we've never had so much information before at our fingertips. And yet we've never been in a position before in time that we can't trust anything.
0: And that and that's why I'm feeling that I'm makes it even harder like to, to reach people yeah. and have them trust you building trust as a business. I mean, we've been around 40 years. There's a lot of people who trust us, um, how do we maintain mm-hmm. that trust? How do we not break that trust? How do we not get painted with what they call cancel culture, a brush somewhere where we make the wrong move or we do something that offends a certain group of people and suddenly we've lost a group of people's trust? Uh, and it's impossible. It's hard to get back. It's almost like advertising's not going to be enough. It's like you have to get engaged in the mm-hmm. conversations. You have to have a presence and a trusted presence. So how do you become that trusted presence across multiple platforms? That's going to be the key.
1: That was interesting. You know, before we close out here, I was looking at, uh, uh, we had a notification that somebody commented on one of our ads on Facebook and uh, just this morning, and the person was commenting about private locates and private utilities that, you know, we don't, they aren't marked or they, they aren't part of utility safety partners, membership and registration and, uh, that we're spreading disinformation. And I look at the ad again and it's like, no, we're not. But if you want to be picky about it, yes, you're right. We, private lines are not part of the, the of what we, our members will, will locate. I uh, it was more for agriculture and farming and, you know, there's a lot of transmission pipelines out there and maybe that's what, uh, the ad should be talking about perhaps a little bit more. But if a person wants to pick, um, you know, go through and pick the, um, the fly shit out of the pepper. (laughs) That's my predecessor used to say they can, and they can do with anything. Unfortunately that, uh, that happens, but at the same token, by the same token, it opens a door for us, utility safety partners to engage in a conversation with that person and say, you're right. We, our members will not locate private utilities Here's why, but here's what we will do and, uh, to, to, you know, promote that damage prevention message. And that's really what it's all about. If we can engage in a conversation that's meaningful, that provides information that, that's real, that's trusted, then we've done our job. And, and, uh, and thanks for you doing your job. You know, this is not an easy task, um, uh, providing these services to the public and, and being the answer to all their questions and, and their queries and, and be re- able to respond on all platforms on which they wish to, uh, to interact with us. So, thanks for being with on the podcast with me today. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks.
2: Anytime.
1: That's going to wrap things up on the Safety Moment podcast. I want to thank our producers, stories, and strategies. And I hope you choose to follow this podcast on any directory you're listening on. And please do leave a rating. You can follow us on Twitter at utility underscore safety. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to send us a note, maybe you have an episode idea, email us at info at and put podcast in the subject header. I'm Mike Sullivan, the president of Utility Safety Partners. Click to know what's above and below. One click costs you nothing. Not clicking could cost you everything.